Good morning and welcome to our gathering. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we will be continuing in our study in Ephesians. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 this morning. Verses 14 through 16, Ephesians 2. Give you a second to turn there. Last Sunday, we looked at how God overcame the obstacles the Ephesians were facing prior to them knowing Christ, the obstacles they were facing as unbelievers. They had a sin and spiritual death obstacle that kept them from God, and we looked at how God overcame this obstacle, this sin and death obstacle, by the working of His own great might and power, how He raised them up with Christ. The Ephesians also had a status obstacle. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of God's covenant community, the nation of Israel, if you will, strangers to the covenants of promise, and without God in the world. That was their status, and God overcame their status, this obstacle, by the blood of Christ. It was through the blood of Christ that they had been cleansed washed, purified, and brought near to God, and added to His covenant community, the church. This morning, we're going to look at true peace. I'm using the phrase true peace because there does exist in our world such a thing as false peace. The world says we can experience peace if we do this or that, and if we can get others to follow our example. It says if we work hard enough at peace, um, we can create a sort of utopia on earth. Uh, years ago, John Lennon, the, uh, one of the Beatles, wrote a song that embodies this ideology called Imagine. Here are some of the lyrics, and you might remember the song. It's actually a very pretty song, but it's also very deceptive. But here are a few of the lyrics from it. It says, he said, imagine... There's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. As a socialist, Lenin believed that peace could be achieved through eliminating countries and borders and religion and God and maybe even income inequality and so on, what people like him fail to understand is that uh, removing certain things and maybe adding more restrictions like gun control or whatever you have will not change human nature and therefore bring in true peace. Guys like him do not understand that humanity has a heart problem, that we are sinners, that we are prideful and selfish and self-seeking. The truth is there will never be true peace at any level until certain things are realized and embraced. In Paul's day, uh, disagreement over religious rituals arose between believers in some of the churches, which resulted in division and the formation of two groups. Uh, the circumcision group, which was comprised of Jewish believers, 
and the uncircumcision group, which was comprised of Gentile believers. In our text, Paul sought to warn these believers throughout the churches in Ephesus, or maybe to educate them, maybe to correct them, and most certainly to unify them by presenting to them the twofold peace work of Christ. We're going to look at how Christ established vertical peace, that's peace between man and God, and horizontal peace, that's peace between man and man. Now I'd like to uh, read our main text, pray, and then we'll get to work. And I hope you're already turned there, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Let me go ahead and read this out loud, then we'll pray. The Bible says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Father, we pray that you would humble us at this very moment and open our our hearts and minds and ears to the truth. God, some of us are experiencing relational warfare right now, and we need true peace. Some of us at this very moment do not have peace with you, and we need that peace as well. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us this morning, and not only teach us, that we would not only hear these words and the truth and the Bible and the Scripture and this message about true peace, that, but that we would also be able to believe it and accept it and to live it out. And so we pray for true peace this morning, peace with you, which so many of us have and enjoy, and peace with others, which so many of us have and enjoy and so many of us need to experience right at this very moment in our marriages and relationships, friendships, work relationships, wherever we are connected to people. We give you this time and we pray that you would be glorified and honored and Help us to not be distracted and to focus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm going to have to handle this text a little differently than normal. Normally, I will read a verse or a few lines or a word and then give commentary. But the way that this particular little section is structured, I need to handle it as a whole. And so I'm not going to read a little section and then give commentary. I'm going to give commentary on the whole thing and then point periodically to phrases and things in the text. So the first thing that I want you to notice in the text or from the text is that true peace is a person. True peace is a person. You might want to write that down. Um, Who was Paul writing about here in this text, right? Who was he writing about? He says, for he himself is our peace. Who is he writing about? Well, if you look back at verse 13, he's talking about Christ. This whole section has been about Christ. It's, it's in Christ that we have peace. It's in Christ that we have these spiritual blessings and so on and so forth. So the first thing we see is that peace or true peace is a person, and that person is Christ. Christ is our peace. Christ is our true peace. Now I want you to think about what the Scriptures say about Christ. In Isaiah 9, Christ is called the Prince of Peace. Now, we had that section read a little bit earlier, and it was fantastic during our Scripture reading time. In that section, we learned that Christ is the Prince of Peace. That's what Isaiah 9 calls Him. In Genesis 49, we 
read that when Jacob was on his deathbed, he spoke blessings over his sons, right? These guys, these 12 sons, were going to become the tribal leaders over the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and before this guy died, he was on his deathbed. His sight was pretty much gone, and he was you know, dying and getting ready to go be with the Lord. And he, he, he kind of preached or spoke these blessings over each of his, his sons. And when he got to his son named Judah, he prophesied about the coming Messiah. He said, when Shiloh comes, the people will be gathered together and unified. What is Shiloh? Is Shiloh a place? Yes, when we think of Shiloh, typically in the Old Testament, we think of a place. But not in this text. In this text, Shiloh is not a place. Shiloh is a who. And Shiloh is Christ, the coming Messiah. Back then, he was the coming Messiah. We know now that he's come. But back then, he was the coming Messiah. He is the Shiloh. He is the Shiloh. Shiloh, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is the Prince of Peace, right? Who would come and gather his people together and unify them. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, we read about the birth of Christ and how Christ is associated with peace. Uh, There were shepherds nearby uh, his birthplace in Bethlehem, near the stable, if you will, and these Shepherds saw a multitude of angels praising God and saying, and this is what the angels were saying out loud, kind of repetitively, right? They were saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. And then again, here in our text, we read, for He Himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace. So what we see is an established pattern over and over and over in the Scripture, over and over and over in the Bible. It is clear that Christ is peace or that Christ brings peace and so on and so forth. Maybe that we would even say that Christ is the starting point for peace. Uh, That's the way that I like to look at it and to look at Christ. He is the starting point for peace. If we do not start with the person of Christ... We will never experience and enjoy true peace. And I mean literally never. If we don't begin with Jesus, we will never ever experience true peace. Ever, ever. And this is why the world is as it is. The world does not see Christ as peace. Okay, it doesn't recognize Christ at all as Savior or Messiah, but it most certainly does not see Him or recognize Him as peace or as the source of peace or as the purveyor of peace, if you will. Rather than seeing Christ as peace, the world comes up with its own explanations and strategies to achieve peace. It appoints political leaders to make peace. It rewards those who do so, the Nobel Peace Prize, etc. It creates legislation to promote peace maybe to force peace, Uh, it develops philosophical ideologies that are meant to produce peaceful and utopian societies, and we think of Marxism and Maoism and Mein Kampf, and what people don't realize, Mein Kampf was sort of Hitler's um, vision-casting statement for Germany, and in it he kind of illustrates and lays out how to get Germany to this perfect utopia with peace and and power and these sorts of things. And of course, Mein Kampf produced fascism, Nazism, etc. All of these things, Marxism, Maoism, Mein Kampf, fascism, Nazism, and a whole lot of other isms have all been designed, they're all philosophical designs and ideologies that are meant to produce a utopian, peaceful society. 
But rather than bringing true peace, these political leaders and these with their ideologies have actually resulted in the opposite, like mass murder, mass bloodshed, mass death. Millions of people have been slaughtered in the name of peace, in the name of utopia. And the fact is that no earthly political leader, legislation, or ideology has ever succeeded at establishing true peace, and quite frankly, as I've said already, they never will. Why? Because Christ is true peace. Christ alone is true peace. True peace can only be found in Him, in Christ. And anyone who desires true peace must turn their back on the world and come to Christ. That's what they must do. This person must come to Christ and he or she must be put into Christ by grace through faith. Now, and they will totally experience true peace if they do this. Now, somehow the Ephesians were ignorant of who Christ is in this regard. And if if they themselves weren't ignorant, they were headed there because churches around them were obviously ignorant. Now, the Ephesians, maybe the surrounding churches, knew Christ as Messiah. They knew Him as Lord, but apparently from our text, they did not know Him as peace. And they were also, therefore, ignorant of His work. Christ had established peace for them, but they were seemingly unaware of it. And what we see in the text, in this particular text, is nothing short of a miracle. It really is. Christ has established for believers vertical peace, peace with God the Father. And this is a miracle. This is something that we could never achieve on our own, no matter how hard we strive and no matter how religious we become or how good we might think we are or how hard we work at it. Christ has established for believers vertical peace, peace with God the Father. When Christ went to the cross and died a bloody sacrificial death, He took our sin upon His body and He absorbed the full blast of God's hostility and wrath and He quenched the justice of God with His own blood. And through His cross work, He established peace between us and the Father. And that's what it says in our text, essentially, but really, I love the way it says it over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And because we have this peace, because He established it through His work at the cross, through His blood, this is why we can now draw near to the Father. And we read about that last week in Ephesians 2, 13. At the cross, another miracle here is that at the cross, Christ also established for believers horizontal peace. That's peace with one another. But we need to be clear about something, crystal clear. People will never experience peace or horizontal peace until they first experience vertical peace. Vertical peace must come first. And this is something else that the world gets wrong. The world always begins with man and ends with man. And because of this, it will never succeed. Also, The world doesn't understand sin and its devastating effects on humanity. It doesn't get it. Sin not only separates us from God, it also separates us from one another. 
There's an estrangement that has happened through sin. And sin not only created a state of enmity against God, it has also created a state of enmity against one another. Sin is the root cause of our lack of true peace and broken relationships and heartache and division and and disunity and all of these things. If we desire to experience true peace at the horizontal level, peace with one another, we must first deal with our sin and peace problems at the vertical level. Sadly, the world rejects this truth and reality. It scoffs at it. It laughs at us when we preach these things. It laughs at me. I'm going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones a couple of times because his commentary and insights on this particular passage are fantastic. Listen to what he said here. He said, The supreme tragedy is that the world does not see this. And this is because it starts with the supposition that, whatever the explanation is, it has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christ, and nothing to do with religion. He says, we are adults and no longer children, so these things must not even be considered. And he says, man does not see that it is because he is in a wrong relationship to God that he is in a wrong relationship to his fellow man. And I like how Jesus put it in Matthew 22, 36 to 39. Jesus really, really nailed what I'm talking about here, this, this particular truth. He put it so clearly. An expert in the law, a Pharisee, came to him with a trick question. He said to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he said, And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want you to notice the order in his teaching right here because that's exactly what he was doing was he was teaching this Pharisee relationship. He was teaching him relationships about relationships. And and, and I want you to notice the note uh, the the uh, notice the the order here and and I I'm just going to tell you I can't emphasize this is enough. This is absolutely key. This is absolutely imperative that we get this order right. First, Jesus points to a relationship with God, right? He said, love the Lord. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God, etc., etc. Okay, so firstly, he points to God. Love the Lord your God. Second, Jesus pointed to our relationship with fellow man. He said, love your neighbor. Okay, that's our fellow man. That's, that's everyone else. As yourself. That's what he said. So what we see here in the text, the order in this Matthew Gospel Matthew passage is God first, neighbor second. That's the order. And I'm going to read a little more from MLJ's commentary because it's really, really good. He says, and I quote, The whole tragedy of the modern world is due to the fact that the first relationship is entirely left out and men think you can start with the second relationship. But you cannot. Because you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The problem, therefore, is how am I to love myself? 
And according to the Bible, I shall never love myself in the right way until I see myself as I am in my relationship to God. So I cannot possibly carry out the second commandment unless I am already clear about the first. It is impossible. And man today, not recognizing God and not starting with God and not submitting himself to God, is trying to reconcile himself to his fellow man. And of course he is not succeeding. He never can succeed. This is a a marvelous insight here. Think about it. How can we rightly love our neighbor and experience true peace with him when we don't even understand how to love ourselves rightly? And you just think about that for a moment. We get snagged up right there. We're commanded to love others as we love ourselves, and we don't even know how to love ourselves rightly. We don't. Today, People think that loving ourselves means spoiling ourselves and doing whatever makes us happy and fulfilling our desires and fulfilling our dreams and wishes and satisfying our flesh. And when it comes to others, we, in the name of love, exploit them and use them and and treat them as objects and resources, as resources for our own cause and for our own pleasure and advancement. This is modern-day marriage, friends. As a wedding DJ, you should hear some of the corny and terrible wedding sermons I've heard. I've heard things like this, you know, do you, Jacob, promise to make Christy happy through thick and thin, no matter what, so help you God. I'm sitting in my booth thinking, okay, so wait a minute, the goal of their marriage is to make one another happy. They're toast. There's no way they're going to make it because they're going to fail. And and I'm I'm always reminded when I hear these kinds of sermons, you know, because people don't know any better and this is what they're committing themselves to, it it reminds me very quickly for why the divorce rate is at 50%. 50% of marriages end in divorce. No wonder people go through spouses like batteries, right? When, when self-happiness and self-gratification and self-fulfillment, when these self-centered, self-focused things run out, it's time to get a new spouse. One with more juice. It's a tragedy. We will never be able to love others rightly until we love ourselves rightly. And we will never love ourselves rightly until we first experience the love of God in Christ. God must be first. The love of God must be first, and we must reciprocate it. We must love God first, right? God first loved us, and now we love Him back. Once the love bond with God is formed, then we can move out from there. It's so imperative that we understand the relational order That's what Christ has been talking about here in that Matthew text. We begin with a relationship with God. Love God with all our heart, strength, soul, mind, etc. This is the point where we will be able to see and love ourselves rightly, which is not going to look like a bunch of self-self-gratifying, self-focused, selfish kind of spoiling love. We shouldn't love our flesh 
and, and, and love its urges and try to supply, you know, and try to meet the need of its urges and these sorts of things. Man, when we know that God loves us, we can love ourselves rightly. God loves us as his children, and we should, in return, love ourselves as his children. I love the fact that I'm God's child. You see, if you don't understand the love of God for you, then you can't understand how to rightly love yourself and move out from there. You just can't do it. It's impossible. Once we begin to understand how God loves us and accepts us and, and, and keeps us, then we can move out. That's the point. That's the point when we will be able to see and love ourselves rightly and then begin to see and love our neighbors rightly. And you know what? The same principle applies to true peace. True peace begins at the vertical level. We must first experience peace with God. This is the point, right? Once we have peace with God, this is the point where we will be able to experience true peace or peace at the horizontal level or at any level. And I'd like to remind everyone in here, including myself, that there is only one way in to what we're talking about here. One way into peace with God and love with God and then to go out from there, there's only one way in. We enter into a relationship with God and true peace, right? We get the relationship with God. We experience the true peace, all of His blessings. We can only do that by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. That's how we experience true peace or anything that's good and holy and righteous and blessed. It's through Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. He came to die for us and for me to establish these things for us, for me. Now, question. How did Christ establish vertical and horizontal peace that's true peace, right? The vertical, the horizontal, that's true peace. How did he establish true peace for the Ephesians, for those listeners in those churches a couple thousand years ago, and for all believers, including us? How did he do it? Well, I want you to look at several phrases, right, from the text. Look at this one here. It says there in the text, it says, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This particular phrase deals with both kinds or types of peace. In one sense, the abolishment of the law of commandments expressed in ordinances has to do with bringing us peace at the vertical level, peace with God. We have all, and I mean all, violated God's commandments, which means that we are all lawbreakers and that we are all guilty Okay? Because of this lawlessness, because we've broken God's commandments, we're all guilty. We're all under His wrath. We're all under His judgment. We're all headed for hell. That's our punishment. The good news is, during His incarnation, Jesus Christ obeyed all of God's commandments perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. And through his perfect obedience to all the commandments, he earned for us a perfect righteous standing with God. At the cross, he imputed this perfect righteous standing to us. We call this 
The theological term for this is the great exchange, maybe even the doctrine of imputation. He literally, Christ literally traded his perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness through his perfect obedience for all of our sin and unrighteousness and disobedience. That's the great exchange. He also canceled our lawless record, Colossians 2, 14. And I want you to make a note of that. He canceled our lawless record, which means a lawless record exists that God takes an account for every human life, all of a person's disobedience, all of a person's unrighteousness. Every breach of God's law is recorded, and those things will be used against people on judgment day. In Colossians 2.14, it says, For believers, Christ canceled our lawless record. Also in the Scripture, it says that we are no longer under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.15. And don't get me wrong here. I don't want to promote antinomianism, which is lawlessness. God's moral law is still binding on the world, right? And God's moral law is still binding on Christians in a sense. We are commanded to, to, to love God. You know, think of the Ten Commandments. We're commanded to love God rightly as believers. The first four commandments and the last, uh, last five, we're commanded, last six, we're commanded to love others rightly. And so the Ten Commandments for us, they're binding on us in that it's a model for us, and that's, that's how we learn to live and to follow Christ and to please God with our lives, but for unbelievers, they're completely binding in a sense that every believer is bound to obey them, and since they can't, they've failed, they're going to be judged for that. Now, this law-abolishing work of Christ has made peace possible at the vertical level, and in another sense, it has made peace possible at the horizontal level. Jews and Gentiles were separated by the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, But this was not God's intent. The Jews turned the commandments into a dividing wall. I like that phrase he puts there. The law, however, was actually part of God's revelation, a part of His salvation. But instead of proclaiming it and the coming Messiah to the nations, the Jews kept it to themselves and hid behind it. Instead of using God's law, God's commandments in evangelism, they used it to judge, condemn, to isolate, to separate. Dividing wall in the text is a reference to the wall that separated the Gentile court from the Jewish court in the temple at Jerusalem. There were actually two courts, one up in the front and one in the middle, and, uh, and Jews were allowed in one court and Gentiles were allowed in the other, and they weren't, I think Jews could probably pass through the Gentile courts, although I don't think they would, but Gentiles could not enter the Jewish court under any circumstances. They had to stay in their court, court, which was at the very end of the complex or very front of the complex near the main entrance in what I would call or what we would call if you ever go to a football game, their court was over in the nosebleed seats, way out there at the end of the complex. And there was a, a gate between the Gentile and Jewish court, and above the gate there was a warning that was posted, and it read something like this, Gentiles will be executed upon entering. If a Gentile entered into the Jewish court, even by mistake, he or she would be immediately escorted 
to the exit, maybe even outside the city gates, and then stoned to death. I mean, it was that serious of an infraction. If you crossed through the dividing wall into the Jewish section and you were a Gentile and non-Jew, you were in big, big trouble. You would lose your life. In Acts chapter 21, this was a while ago when we read about this because we studied the book of Acts together. It took us a couple years to do it. When we got to chapter 21, we read about how the Jews accused Paul of bringing Trophimus, the Gentile, into the Jewish court. Now, this was a false charge, of course. Paul done no such thing at all. He never brought Trophimus into the Jewish section. He knew better than to do that. He would never put Trophimus's life uh, you know, at jeopardy or in, in some kind of violation here. He wasn't that kind of a person. Paul wouldn't have done that. And what actually happened was the Jews, at one maybe a day before that or maybe earlier that day, they saw Paul walking with Trophimus and they came up with this idea and, you know, when Paul was in the Gentile or in the uh, temple court, in probably the Jewish court where he was, uh, they came up with the idea to make some kind of false claim that he had brought a Gentile into the wrong area. And so they started to shout this and they started to yell this and all of a sudden a, a riot formed and people started beating Paul up, almost beat him to death. Now, the Roman commander at the time broke up the, the tumult, the fight, the riot, and pulled Paul out of it and put him into custody. He didn't know what happened. He was saying, what the heck's going on here? They're beating this guy to death. He wanted to know who Paul was and what he had done. And so he took him into custody and got him out of there. But we can see the seriousness of this. This dividing wall was a very, very serious thing. And if you crossed over it and you weren't Jewish, you were as good as dead. Now the text says that Christ in his own flesh broke down the dividing wall. And, and I, I must submit to you that, that what Paul has in mind here isn't the dividing wall in the temple, okay? Christ didn't go into the temple and break down the dividing wall, although I would say that when he was on the cross, the, uh, the curtain that, you know, separated the holiest of holies from another room was torn down in half, so Christ did destroy that in a sense. But Paul's not talking about how Christ, like, physically went in and destroyed this dividing wall in the temple. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's referring to is the imaginary dividing wall the Jewish Christians at Ephesus and in the surrounding churches were guarding and proclaiming. What was their imaginary dividing wall? What was it that they used to separate themselves, these Jewish Christians, from the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians? What was this make-believe dividing wall? It was circumcision. Circumcision was a commandment expressed in ordinances. The Jewish Christians divided and separated from the Gentile Christians because they weren't circumcised. Because they didn't want to follow that practice. Gentiles in those days did not get circumcised. It wasn't their custom. It wasn't one of their ordinances. It wasn't one of the facets or steps of obedience in their religion. Circumcision here in our text, it became the barrier. It became the dividing wall. And Paul, what he did here, he said in effect, Christ has torn it down. Christ has abolished circumcision, right? Because it's part of one of the many commandments expressed in the ordinances. He says it's gone. It shouldn't, he's, what he's saying here is that it shouldn't divide you because it's gone. It has no relevance. It has no bearing on your faith. It's a Christ alone kind of thing. That's what he's saying here. Now, I doubt that 
anyone in this room would divide or separate from someone else here in this room or anywhere else over the issue of circumcision. I mean, let's just face it, that would be incredibly awkward. Even To even ask the question, pardon me, sir, are you circumcised? No, I can't have anything to do with you. This just became extraordinarily awkward, right? So I don't think that, that, that people maybe in this day and age, maybe some would, Christians I'm speaking of, would divide over this issue. But what about tattoos? Now, I'm neither for nor against tattoos. I, I have one and I've had it since I was a kid. I kind of wish I didn't get it. But like I said, I'm not for or against them. But believe it or not, there are a whole lot of Christians that are supposed to be on the same team, right? Same grace, same salvation, these things. And they're supposed to unify and then, you know, maybe one of them has tattoos and there's a whole group that says, I, I can't have anything to do with him because he has tattoos on him and he broke the Old Testament commandments because in the Old Testament it's forbidden to have tattoos and these things and so I need to separate from him and so on. And believe it or not, there's Christians that actually do it over pork, you know, because that's an Old Testament ordinance. They do it over shellfish. That's crazy because shrimp and lobster are amazing. Uh, some do it over Saturday Sabbath. There are some out there who profess Christ who believe that we must worship God on Saturdays and have our Sabbath on Saturdays, and, and if we don't do that, then we, you know, we can't be a part of the body and these sorts of things. Some do it over 10% tithing. I'm not opposed to 10% tithing. I think it's a great starting point, a great model for believers, but it is an Old Testament ordinance. Uh, in the New Testament, we see that what God actually desired, even with the 10% tithe and all that, what He actually desires, what He's desired since beginning of time with humanity is a cheerful, joyful heart when it comes to giving. And that can be 5%, 1%, 100%. It can be whatever. But believe it or not, there are Christians that say, well, if you're not a 10% tither, I can't really have anything to do with you. You know, they divide over tattoos, divide over pork, shellfish, that's crazy, Saturday Sabbath, tithing and these sorts of things. In some places, Christians literally divide over these things. But what are these things? They are what Paul is talking about in this text. They are commandments expressed in ordinances. Let me tell you what they are. They belong to a particular category of the law, and that category is the ceremonial category. And Christ has completed and finished and dissolved all of those things, the, the stitching on of certain types of fabrics on clothes and the eating of certain foods and these sorts of things, all of these things have been absorbed and completed in Christ. Their, their time is done. He has abolished them, right? This is the ceremonial law we're talking about. not talking about the moral law. That still stands. We're talking about these little nuancy little things that really belong to, if you think about it, really belong to Israel during Israel's time when they had become a nation and when they were called to be separate and holy from all the other nations. Christ has abolished these things. So what does that mean? If he's completed them, if he's abolished them, what does it mean? Well, <laughs> it's pretty black or white. It means that we shouldn't divide over them. Actually, dividing over these things in the church is a sin. It's a sin. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I didn't give a whole lot of thought to this, but maybe I should have. But 
in my mind, the only thing that I can think of that we should actually divide over in the church. I mean, when Christians are in a church together, the only thing that should divide them is apostasy, which is the rejection of Christian orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? It's, it's like when you have a bunch of believers together and, 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 they, and they love each other, and then all of a sudden one starts to begin to say that, you know, this particular doctrine, you know, like Christ isn't God you know, or that, you know, uh, we're not justified by faith alone, we're justified by works. These are, those are apost, uh, those things are apostasy, those things are heretical statements. And if someone begins to proclaim those things in the church, begins to say those things in the church, even if they're whispering them, they need to be addressed. And if they do not recognize their error and repent and they continue to proclaim these things, we have to divide with them. They have to be removed. They have to be disciplined and probably, if they still don't repent, they have to be removed. The same thing would apply to maybe homosexuality today, which is a huge subject in the church today. There's Christians all over that are saying that, hey, homosexuality is, is, is it's a sin, and you know they praise God for grace, that God's grace can overcome that sin, because it is a terrible sin, like all sins, terrible. It's a terrible sin that destroys people, destroys lives, keeps us separated from God, and and, but grace is bigger than the sin, and it can take care of it. And, and, and you know, Christ died to save homosexuals. He did. He, Christ died to save sexually immoral people, which we all are, because all we have to do is lust or, or fornicate or do any of these things, and we're as guilty as anyone else who commits homosexuality. We can just think about a woman wrongly is what Christ said, or a man wrongly, and we've, we're, we're sexually immoral and we're guilty. Grace is big enough to take care of these things, but there are some in the church that say, hey, that's their position, they agree with that, they believe that, and there are others who you know, are professing Christ at the same time and saying homosexuality is not a sin, what matters is how people love one another, and that's what God values and sees and rewards and blesses, and so on and so forth, and, if you, and I've had plenty of debate and conversation with people that hold this position, and quite frankly, they don't relinquish this position, they hold it and hold it and hold it, and I can tell you if this happened at this church, that person would have to ultimately be removed. We would have to separate and divide because that is a divisive issue, it's a sin issue, and we need to recognize it for how it is. The, the only thing that we should divide over is, is a breach of orthodoxy. And I even take it farther and say orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is the doctrine itself. Orthopraxy is how we live that doctrine out. Because in this day and age, you've got a whole lot of people that their, maybe their statement of faith on their website would look like our statement of faith on our website. They would agree with all of the same doctrines and these things, and that's awesome. But when it comes to living out those doctrines, they live them out in a very bizarre, unscriptural way. And this is seen most prevalently in the charismatic movement. They will claim to believe the same things as you and I. Not all of them, but many of them. And then when it comes to living these things out, it's a circus act. And I, I don't know how you could possibly be unified with someone who's speaking gibberish and doing these sorts of things that aren't scriptural, how, how are you going to maintain unity in the bond of peace with somebody who claims to have right orthodoxy, but when it comes to orthopraxy, it's, it's off the charts, it's abnormal, it's satanic, you just can't. And so I think it has, I think you can divide, I think you can legitimately, biblically divide over a breach of orthodoxy and even orthopraxy. Now the ultimate point 
of this verse is pretty simple here, of this phrase, if you will. Christ tore down and abolished these ritualistic things so we can experience peace horizontally, peace with one another. Right? As long as these things get in the way, we're not going to have peace with one another. But since Christ tore them down, we don't have to adhere to them any longer. We don't have to uphold them any longer. And we don't have to proclaim them any longer. And we don't have to divide over them. This is further illustrated in the next phrase. It says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. You know, we need to realize that as believers, we are not a collection of different races and opposite sexes in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female in Christ. We are not individuals in Christ. We all together make up what he says in the text is a really neat statement, the one new man. That's what we make up. All together we make up the one new man. And Christ is the head and we are the body. Division and strife arise when prideful individuals compete with one another. This is when it happens. They begin to compare themselves with one another and boast. Well, look at my zeal and look at my piety and look at my giving and look at my service and look at my knowledge. I'm farther along than him. I'm farther along than her. And this is what Christians do, right? They start dividing over their own selves. Like I'm so focused on myself and I think I'm so great that I begin to be critical of others and then divide from them because I see them as inferior And in a way, this is what might have been happening in Ephesus. I know it was happening in some of the other churches. I think Ephesus was was headed in this direction. What we must understand is something that I talked about last week. All Christians are on level ground. We are all saved by the same grace, through the same faith, in the same Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no good, there is no better, and there is no best kind of believer We are all the same. There is no strong believer and there is no weak believer. We are all weak believers. The minute that we begin to start thinking that we're strong, we're now filled with pride and the fall, because it says pride comes before the fall, the fall ain't far away when we start thinking that, hey, I'm strong and I've got it down. I love, I think it's in James where it says, you know, if if that's your attitude, be careful where you stand lest ye fall. It's only a matter of time when pride leads us to some kind of catastrophic fall. Never think of yourself as a strong believer and that person as a weak believer or vice versa. We're, we're, We're all weak. We're all weak believers. We all need Christ. We all need grace. We're all dependent on God. We have to be. When people say, well, Jesus is your crutch, Yeah, he's not just my crutch. At times he's my wheelchair. At times he's my gurney. He is all of those things because I am a weak, feeble sinner who is saved by grace. I'm not better than anyone in this room. By no means. In fact, I often think of myself as Paul thought of himself, the chief of sinners. I do. And you should too. And incredibly, all of us have been joined together to form this one new man in Christ, which means that we are no longer a bunch of competing, prideful individuals. 
I'm not in competition with Paul Rogers in here or anyone else. And he's not in competition with me. We all belong to the same one man. And we should function that way and support each other. Just as the parts on my body support the other parts of my body, we should support one another in the body of Christ. The grand purpose, I think, of our text or all this oneness here is horizontal peace, peace with one another, right? That's the grand purpose of becoming the one new man. Paul says it right at the end of that little phrase, so making peace. It's like he's taken us as as individuals and combined us into one new man. Why? So making peace. We're not individuals, we're one body. We can have peace as one. If we think of ourselves as a bunch of individuals and we're competing, we are not going to experience peace. And here's what really stinks about that. Christ died and shed his blood to establish this peace for us. How foolish of us not to embrace it and to enjoy it. We are commanded to do so. Last phrase. It says, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Now this is, this is huge. This phrase is massive. It's monstrous. It's ginormous. It's just big. And reconcile is a very, very important word. It means to restore, right from the text here in the Greek, it means to restore friendship or harmony. The idea here is that every past, present, and future believer was represented in Christ's body at the cross. Jew and Gentile, male and female, folks from every tribe and tongue. You know, when the Scripture says that Christ died for the world, it is pointing to this act and historical moment. Christ died in every believer's place, right there on the cross. He died vicariously for them in their place. When He died on the cross... Every, every believer of all time was represented right there in his own body. It's as if we were all there in his body and he died right there in our place and as if we died with him in a sense. The scriptures say we have been crucified with him. I want you to think about that. Christ died vicariously for every believer right there at Calvary. We call this substitutionary atonement just means that he died in our place and through his death he killed the divine hostility that our sin had created and he reconciled or restored us to friendship and harmony with our creator God the Father just think about it what's a synonym for harmony peace Peace is a synonym for harmony. Christ restored us to friendship and peace. That's vertical peace with God the Father. That's this passage. That's this section. These are the things that he wants the Ephesians to understand, to comprehend. He Back in the uh, last chapter, at the end of chapter 1, he prayed that they would be able to comprehend these things. I pray that we would be able to comprehend and live out these things. Closing, I think Paul's main point is this. True peace 
is in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. It won't be found in anyone else. It won't be found in anything else. No earthly politician is going to usher it in, but I'd like to warn you that the Antichrist who is to come will be seen and recognized as a man of peace. We need to be on guard. No earthly politician is ever going to really usher it in, not true peace. No ordinance is going to perpetuate it. No philosophical ideology is going to establish it. True peace is in the person and work of Christ alone. That's a fact. If you are a believer, you have true peace. It's yours. You need to recognize this. You need to embrace it. You need to experience it. You need to enjoy it. It's there for you. You have the vertical peace. You have the horizontal peace. If you don't have peace with others, then maybe you failed to recognize that Christ is your peace and you failed to recognize what His perfect work has established for you. Now, I get it. We have horizontal peace. It's ours, but we also need to pursue it. We still have a sinful nature that gets in the way. We, 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 our selfishness arises at times and causes us to treat others poorly. We need to make for peace. We need to repent. We need to confess. We need to make for peace. We need to uphold in the spirit the bond of peace. We need to do all that we can to pursue peace with one another. And I get it. This really is. I mean, Paul wrote to believers. This is a believer-only thing. Peace is only, horizontal peace is only experienced in the full sense between believers because both have been reconciled to God, both have peace with God. Now both can experience horizontal peace together. You really can't have horizontal peace in the full sense with unbelievers because they don't have vertical peace. All the more reason to proclaim the gospel that God by grace might save them and give them vertical peace. But just because horizontal peace is a difficult thing or maybe even at the full level an impossible thing with unbelievers doesn't mean that we don't pursue it. Unbelievers need to see us as peaceful, peace-loving, peacemaking followers of Jesus Christ, lovers of Jesus. They need to see us for our love. They do. So we need to pursue it as best we can with unbelievers, and we absolutely need to pursue it amongst one another as believers because it is ours to enjoy, and we are commanded to do so. So I'd say let's learn from the Ephesians, right? May we not miss what Christ has accomplished and established for us. And may we not divide over the very things that He died to free us from. (laughs) Why would we continue to keep ourselves shackled to a bunch of Old Testament ordinances that no longer apply to us? Why would we keep ourselves chained to these things? Because they're they're so burdensome at times that we can't do certain things because of them, I guess. But that we would also go as far as to divide from others who, you know, aren't willing to do these things. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's spectacular. There are 33,000 denominations in the Christian church alone. We don't get this truth. 
And I, I, believe me, there, there are some denominations that are good and that need to be there, but for the most part, we have been dividing since Christ came. And sometimes these divisions happen over open-handed, dumb, gone, obliterated issues. How foolish of us. If you are an unbeliever who wants true peace, you must come to Christ. You must repent of your sin and by grace through faith accept Christ as Lord and Savior. He will give you true peace. He will establish He bought it for you. He'll establish peace between you and the Father, and that's going to change your life. And then you will begin to experience peace with others down here at this level, at the horizontal level. Christ is peace, and His finished work has established it for us. Amen.